The Holy Gospel according to Luke. Glory to you, O Lord. At that very time, there were some present who told him about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Jesus asked them, Do you think that was because these Galileans suffered in this way, that they were worse sinners than all other Galileans? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish as they did. Or those 18 who were killed in the tower when the tower of Siloam fell on them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all others living in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all perish just as they did. Then he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for, fr- looking for fruit on it and found none. So he said to the gardener, See here, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree, and still I find none. Cut it down. Why should it be wasting this soil? He replied, Sir, let it alone for one more year, until I dig around it and put manure on it. If it bears fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Please be seated. Grace and peace to you from our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. That's right. In recent weeks, we have watched with the world the devastating effects of the war in Ukraine, with the destruction and terrible suffering taking place there. We have seen the human capacity for destruction, as well as the human capacity for endurance, courage, and hope. And we continue to pray for peace. Today in our gospel lesson, Jesus talks about two tragic events from his own time, both largely lost to history, but would have been well known to the people that Jesus was teaching. One was about Pontius Pilate, as it says, mixing the blood of Galileans with their sacrifices, which was probably a massacre of a group of people from Galilee in Jerusalem. And the other was about how the Tower of Siloam, probably a tower built into the city wall in Jerusalem, fell and killed 18 people. This second event, and the image of these 18 people covered in rock and rubble, immediately evoked for me images from recent weeks of Ukraine, of buildings and homes, highways and hospitals all blown open, their rubble spilling into the streets. The thing that Jesus is trying to explain here, or to counteract in this passage, is that the people listening to Jesus would have just assumed, according to the common religious wisdom of the time, that the 18 people who perished had done something to deserve what happened to them, that they had done something wrong. People would have thought they sinned, and therefore something terrible happened to them. They would have imagined that it was God's judgment against those people that that had happened. And while that probably seems wrong and perhaps even cruel to us, This was common in Jesus' time, and that way of explaining tragedy still persists today. You may remember that soon after an earthquake hit Haiti some years ago, the televangelist Pat Robertson infamously blamed the Haitians for it because they made a deal with the devil. He said they were under the heel of the French, Napoleon III, And they got together and swore a pact to the devil. They said, we will serve you if you help get us free from the prince. He said, true story. And so the devil said, okay, it's a deal. And they kicked the French out. 
The Haitians revolted and got, got themselves free. But ever since, they've been cursed by one thing after another. And so, he said, the Haitians brought this terrible tragedy upon themselves. But it isn't just doddering old televangelists that think this way. We can do it, too, in our own way. We still sometimes draw a connection between sin and tragedy, between the deserving and the undeserving. Out of our very human need to make sense of tragedy, to make sense of something that is so senseless, we sometimes engage in a similar version of reasoning. Barbara Brown Taylor writes that this formula is so persistent and tempting because it solves a lot of problems for us. It answers the riddle of why bad things happen to good people. They don't. Bad things only happen to bad people. Two, it punishes sinners right out in the open as a warning to everyone. And three, it gives us a God who obeys the laws of physics. For every action, there is an opposite and equal reaction. But Jesus tells the crowd gathered there, no, it doesn't work that way. There is no correlation between sin and tragedy, between good people and bad things. He says, don't think that if you are suffering that you have somehow failed at faith, and don't think that if you are fine, you are somehow more blessed by God. Suffering comes to us all, he says, but so does God's grace. At age 35, the author of our Lenten book group, Kate Bowler, was unexpectedly diagnosed with stage 4 cancer. A professor of religion at Duke and well-versed in the ways that Christians try to make sense of suffering, she shared her experience in her best-selling memoir, Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved. I love that title. And as she shared her story in the memoir, she looked at different ways that Christians use to explain suffering. Like, this is happening for a reason, as if God wants it to happen. Or that this is a test of faith, as if God is testing us to see if we really believe. And while we may grow from these experiences and make meaning of them and find our faith both challenged and strengthened, those are not the reasons for its happening. But we would often rather believe those things than recognize the pervasive and indiscriminate nature of suffering. That suffering comes to us all, but God's grace is for us all. Bowler says in that book that during her time of intensive cancer treatment, at a time when I should have felt abandoned by God, I was not reduced to ashes. She said, I felt like I was floating, floating on the love and prayers of all those who hummed around me like worker bees, bringing notes and flowers and warm socks and quilts embroidered with words of encouragement. They came in like priests and mirrored back to me the face of Jesus. When they sat beside me, my hands in their hands, my own suffering began to feel like it had revealed to me the suffering of others, a world of those who, like me, are stumbling in the debris uh, that they thought of um, dreams that they thought they were entitled to, and plans they didn't realize they had made. They offered this small bit of certainty, and I clung to it. When the feelings recede like the tides, they said, they will leave an imprint. I would somehow be marked by the presence of an unbidden God. She says, I can't reconcile the way that the world is jolted by events that are wonderful and terrible, the gorgeous and the tragic, 
except that I am beginning to believe that these opposites do not cancel each other out. I see a middle-aged woman in the waiting room of a cancer clinic, her arms wrapped around the frail frame of her son. She squeezes him tightly, oblivious to the way he looks down at her sheepishly. He laughs for a minute, a hostage to her impervious love. Joy persists somehow, and I soak it in. The horror of cancer has made everything seem like it is painted in bright colors. I think the same thoughts again and again. Life is so beautiful. Life is so hard. In her book that we're reading for Lent, Good Enough, she says that she wrote the book to help us carve out the space between despair and hope, between believing everything is possible and nothing is impossible, to be on the lookout for beauty and meaning and truth in the midst of lives that didn't turn out the way that we thought they would. We can have lives where God breaks in and surprises us. We can learn to believe that we are blessed regardless of how our lives appear. Please, please, please hear me say to you, she says, you are not ruined or broken or a failure. You are simply in pain, and God is with you. This is God's great magic act, in my opinion, she says. The more we suffer, the more we can't get away from God's insistent love. This great magic act is what Lutherans call the theology of the cross. Although we can feel alone or abandoned when we suffer, the cross shows us that this is where God is most present, when God is closest to us. Jesus is right there, and we are never alone. Our comfort comes not in trying to explain why this is happening, but to know that Jesus is right there with us as it does. And he has his own scars on his hands, feet, side, and head to prove it. Jesus is right there in those moments when it feels like we are sifting through the rubble of our own lives, relationships under strain, a future unrealized, a career or calling in doubt, self-doubt, changes in our mental health when we are betrayed by our bodies. And I think of that wonderful line from Ernest Hemingway, the world breaks everyone, and afterward many are strong in the broken places. For Christians, we can lean into the strength of Jesus, who broken for us, who is broken for us, and now can be found in all the broken places of our lives and in the world. That space Bowler describes between despair and hope is where we discover God's grace, God's love, and God's faithfulness. We find Jesus in the rubble of our world and in what can feel like the rubble of our lives. And so, as Bishop Michael Curry recently said, if there is a God, then there is hope. If there is a God, then there can be faith. If there is a God, as my Bible said, who is love, then in the end, no matter what we have to go through now, in the end, love is going to win. If there's a God, love is going to win. And finally, I want to close with a brief video it's a video out of Ukraine of a woman, a concert pianist, playing her piano for the final time in her bombed-out apartment. Beauty among the rubble, hope in the ashes. Amen. <laughs>